on today's show. The point is, is that he's to go out and have the word of God in his mouth and contextualize in the sense of, are you one-on-one? Are you in front of a crowd? Are you in an animistic people group or Islamic people or whatever? We, you know, are you speaking their language, et cetera? So gospel being clearly proclaimed so that there's an actual confrontation. You are a sinner and you will be under God's judgment if you don't look to Christ, repent of your sins, believe, et cetera. Second, church. Do we understand what it is that Christ is building? Like the mission of Christ is to build his church. He tells us that in Matthew 16, I will build my church. Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Communication with ABWE. And in just a moment, we will get into this week's episode, which is part two of our conversation with Chad Vegas over the topic of proclamation in missions and what that means for people that are practicing different methods of sharing the gospel. Before we dive in, remember to leave a positive review and a five-star rating in your app of choice for your podcasts. That really helps the show to grow. And if you haven't yet heard part one of this important discussion, encourage you to go back to last week and listen to that episode to get caught up. But without any further ado, we bring you the second part of our conversation with Chad Vegas. So we, we talk about these models in the scripture, you know, certainly, you know, we've talked about examples of Jesus or Philip or all the preaching examples of scripture. How do we view those? Do you view those as purely prescriptive? Do you view them as descriptive? Because if we view them as prescriptive, we do recognize that we have a very limited set of, you know, of all the preaching and all the teaching and all the discipling that was done. There's big gaps. And so how do you work that through and how do you look at it and say, hey, these are the things we see as descriptive versus prescriptive? Yeah. I love that question. Um, you guys, Scott and I have talked offline about this many times, and we've thought about doing an entire podcast on this particular episode, uh, on that particular question, uh, because it's a salient question. Um, it depends, and this is going to sound like a big cop out, but it depends on the context. The key thing that I want to hone in on, what are the disciples or the apostles self-consciously doing in the book of Acts? Are they self-consciously applying what we see in Matthew 28, are they self-consciously saying, okay, Jesus told us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, so on and so forth. So I'm going to go and do this now. Cause if so, then we should look to that. Cause I think the problem is when we look at the great commission texts, Matthew 28, Luke 24, Acts 1, 8, et cetera, we tend to read them in a vacuum. And now what does it talk? What let's sit and talk about what does it mean to be a disciple and what does it mean to go into all the world? And rather than turning the page and seeing how the apostles understood that and granted their understanding had to grow right early in the book of Acts, they're thinking mostly Judea and then a little bit more about Samaria. And then eventually by the end of it, they're thinking about the ends of the earth where context comes into play is in instances such as the sending out of the 70, what are some unique things there? Okay, Jesus is about to go to the cross. They're sent to the the, the lost uh, within the house of Israel, right? And so there, it's it's kind of a short-term trip because that generation of, of Jews in the nation of Israel basically had one shot at it. They had to accept their Messiah, right? Certain things are happening there, redemptive historically, that, yeah. that aren't true on every mission field throughout all time. Same thing in the book of Acts. Right. Again, whatever someone does with some of the, the charismatic or the sign gifts, but recognizing, okay, we don't have apostolic authority to just say, you know, get up and walk. We can't do that. Um, but 
in as much as the apostles understand themselves to be doing this great commission, evangelism, discipleship, church planting, elder training work, then let's mimic that. Um, And what I love about the New Testament is it doesn't dictate tons and tons of forms that are culturally bound. We're not Muslims saying, okay, you've got to read this in in Arabic or else you're not really reading God's word, right? What we have um, that we're we're trying to stand for, here's what a a healthy biblical church is. Here's uh, the necessity of elders and the right practice of the ordinances. Here's what evangelism is. It's telling people the good news, not just exposing them to it through some channel, but actually telling them this news, this content and calling for a response. Um, But even within that degree of specificity that we want to have, and we want to be firm and stand on those things, there's a lot of playing room that that leaves that can pretty much be adapted in any culture. That's the beauty of it. Um, That's something that I think needs to be drawn out here. We're not against adapting to audience, to setting, to, to what's appropriate. We believe in that, especially, and Chad can share it's, it's in some of the, the reformed confessions, even the ones that are accused of being stodgy uh, and, and outdated yet the, this logic of no, it does need to adapt based on time and place is in those confessional documents. Uh, But what's important is that we check those boxes, those, those bare minimums and then go out and adopt, adapt from there. Two, two confession, two confessional examples, as Alex points out, just in chapter one, of the Westminster Confession, the Savoy Declaration, and the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, paragraph six talks about um, some circumstances concerning worship and the government of the church are going to be ordered after, you know, the light of nature, um, kind of prudence and and the general rules of the, the general rule of the word. Um, further in chapter one, they say that everywhere we go, we need to translate the Bible into the common or vulgar languages. Um, mm-hmm. So those are two examples of contextualization that are built in even to the confession um, that I think are biblical examples of contextualization. So I, th- I think Alex is right. Um, I do think when you talk about descriptive and prescriptive, just to be really kind of put one point on what Alex said, uh, we have to differentiate between what's a redemptive historical event and then what's principially true all the time. So, for example, the sending of the 70 is not just um, something we learn principles from. There are some principles there we can learn for sure. But it's also a redemptive historical event, because if we go all the way back to the Table of Nations and at Babel, there's 70 nations in Genesis 10 and 11. There's 70 members of Abraham's family at the end of Genesis. Um, there are 70 elders who go up in Exodus 24 to the mountain with Moses for the cutting of the covenant. There are 70 people upon whom the Spirit comes in Numbers 11. And Moses says, I wish the Spirit would be pressed, put on all God's people. And there's 12 yeah. tribes of Israel. So he sends out the 12 and then he sends out the 70. Something redemptive historical is happening there. And then and yeah. then we see that picked up in Acts 2, where the Spirit's poured on all the people in answer to Moses' prayer. And the gospel is being heard in all the language languages um, as a reversal of what happened at Babel in Genesis 11. Um, and as a fulfillment of Isaiah 28 and the promise that if the Jews rejected, which was what Peter preaches about, then what would occur uh, as a result of that is God would speak through the Gentile tongues as a kind of judgment upon the Jews for rejecting the gospel. So you're seeing all that stuff fulfilled. That's redemptive historical. So like, I'm not supposed to go get 12 apostles around myself and I, or nor am I supposed to get a, another 70 around myself. That's not like a model for me. Right. Right. But certain things are true. Jesus. Or would you would you put in that seeking out a man, a, a person of peace into that whole idea? Because well, oh, yeah. it seems like it, it seems like it is part of that. 
yeah, what is the person of peace? A son of peace is clear in Luke 10. A son of peace is a believer. It's someone who receives the message. How do I know that? Because in Luke 10, Jesus goes on to tell you exactly what he means when he talks about the person whose house you come to if they receive you. He goes on in Luke 10, and he, he condemns those who don't receive the apostles. Um, and, and then he tells them, um, he says, the one who hears you, verse 16, hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And then he goes on to talk about, uh, you know, the Trinity, interestingly enough, but, and God get, making that known to people, right? Um, but the p- point I'm making is, if you reject the apostles when, or the 70 when they went house to house, you're rejecting the message of the gospel. And Christ right. says that in verse 16. So what's a son of right. peace or a person of peace? It's a person who hears the message of the good news of the kingdom of God and believes, that's clear in the text if we just follow it out. So it's it's not something that we just it's not a it's not a method, right? A person of peace is not a method. It's a human being who hears the gospel message and believes. Um, and it's yes, yeah, so yeah, we should go looking for persons of peace everywhere we go, or sons right. of peace. Here we go. We should proclaim the gospel, and those who receive are sons of peace, and we should be stoked every time we find one. So one thing I would say to our listeners who are who are listening, you know, I've seen it, you know, hey, we pray for dreams and visions to come to people. Well, you know, we all want God to do things. We want him to save people by any means necessary. And we rejoice when we hear of someone who comes and hears the gospel because they were led by a dream. But that is not what scripture says to be praying for. Really, we're supposed to pray for laborers for the harvest and we're supposed to be engaged in in evangelism. And so really we should be praying for boldness and we should be praying for God's church yeah. to be equipped to do that. Right. Not, you know, not saying we don't want God to do miracles. Of course yeah. we would be, we'd be thrilled when he does, but that isn't what we're asked to do. And what I think that's what you guys are saying as well. Yeah. Human messengers are the normative means and to kind of right. put some pastoral tone into some of this, because we're, we're talking about a lot of, you know, tense issues, but um, my heart in this is to free missionaries. Um, I got a message, uh, a private message today from some missionaries serving in North Africa. Of course, I won't say where, but you know who you are if you're listening, uh, sharing that they have coworkers um, who are employing these methods. The word that, that this individual used in, in her private message was uh, they're, they're drunk on these methodologies. And I asked what that meant. Um, and, and she explained that that meant that they don't, they don't know anything outside of it. And she, she simply described they're tired and you can see it in their eyes because they believe it's their job to constantly be looking for this, this false notion maybe of what a, a person of peace is and, and to be constantly thinking basically in so many words, yeah, how do I engineer this movement that's going to catch momentum, catch fire on its own? How do I spark something? And the beauty of what the New Testament gives us, this is also addressed in the book that Chad and I wrote, is, is who is the, the gospel worker that is called and what is the work that they're called to do? You get into some of the pastoral epistles and talk about the qualifications for an elder, pastor, missionary type of, of worker there. And you see that lens through Timothy, through Titus. Um, but the simplicity there of, hey, what you're called to do is to proclaim the gospel lovingly, winsomely, boldly. 
and trust God with the consequences. What frees us is understanding that yeah. if a if a genuine movement is going to take root, it's going to be because of the Spirit of God and His sovereign activity calling many of these sons of peace to Himself. You're free to do the ordinary thing and leave the results to God. And it is burden lifting. It's not burdensome. We're not saying everybody, you need to be bolder and and you're being lazy with these methods. Rather, it's saying we want to release you from the burden of feeling as though you've got to manufacture something because Christ's burden, even for missionaries, is light can can i and i think putting that pastoral tone i think is is helpful i i actually want to argue that some of my frustration with what's happening in missiology and and even anger about what's happening in missiology is a pastoral frustration or anger i've got nine people on the field from my church whom i love who have children um i'm talking about the adults um and and I've got, um, it's, it's soon to be about 16. So there's seven more in the, in the hopper. And there, there are people raised up in our church. They're some of our best people. We love them. I love the wives. I love the children. And I, I am deeply frustrated by the sort of, um, and even angered by the sort of haphazard way we go about um, sending people to the field and what we have them going out there to do. Um, these people are going to suffer. I cannot look at a... a a man and his wife and children and say, yeah, let your wife and children suffer the loss of many things for the next 10, 15, 20 years. And really, you know, whatever you do methodologically, that's fine. Um, if these people are going to go out and suffer, I want the Lord to go with them. Um, and the Lord blesses the means that the Lord has given to his church. The spirit attends, attends to the means that he's commanded us. And so it's like, as we proclaim the gospel, the spirit promises to be in that. But he doesn't promise to be in whatever little crafty thing I come up with through some kind of cultural anthropological study or some kind of social movement theory or whatever it is. He promises to attend to the means that he's given to his church. And so if I'm going to send those people out to suffer for, I mean, little children, right, to suffer for 15, 20 years, um, we better be sending them out to do what God has clearly said in his word. That's why I get deeply passionate about this, because the Lord will be with us as we do what he tells us, not as we create our own methods. And Paul has been, Paul's mm -hmm. really clear about it, even frustrated when he says, um, for example, in 2 Corinthians 11, when he comes after the false workmen, and he says that they pretend to do the same things we're doing. I mean, he, he actually Straight says in verse um, uh, 12, and what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no, no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness their end will correspond to their deeds. That's some pretty strong language about um, the super apostles of his day, those who boasted in a mission that they argued was more fruitful than Paul's. What we're doing is more methodologically fruitful. That's what the super apostles were saying. Read First and Second Corinthians. Uh, we get bigger crowds. We raise more money. More people listen to us. We're using soaring Greek rhetoric. And Paul says, hey, look, First Corinthians 1.17, that stuff empties the gospel of its, or the cross of its power. 
Um, so I don't want my missionaries to do anything that empties the cross of its power. I don't want them to accidentally haphazardly be deceitful workmen. Um, I, I want them to be those who rightly handle the word of truth and the spirit goes with them to attend to their work. And I'm deadly serious about this because these people are giving their lives for it. If I could just punctuate that real quick, when I point, there's four, three or four fingers pointing back at me, right? So I am someone who needs to grow in my boldness, in my Amen. proclamation, and how much more so um, I, I know if you're a missionary on the field in a hard place, I, I know you guys, I work with you, and we all struggle to be bold. And I know that there are missionaries in hard places who, you know, this is where I, we talk about, we want to ease the burden for sure. Um, there is also a sobering sense of responsibility, though, that we have to allow ourselves to feel, because I know some people in, in hard places need to be kind of jostled awake a little bit and told like this this is to this is supposed to be hard work um it's supposed to be risky and what is success if success is only cultivating cultivating and pre-evangelism and, and and laying the foundation and never trying to proclaim and and get into that conversation if you never get to that point after years and years that's that's of concern. And that's where uh, not me, but scripture said in, to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist uh, f- fulfilling that calling. Right. Um, and and Paul in in first Corinthians nine sixteen, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I have to say that to myself, especially if you're commissioned and sent out by a uh, by a church. Uh, what is the measure of success? Not just how many conversations and relationships have you initiated, but. But but woe to us if if we're not equipping our people in such a way that they understand that at the end of the day, when all of the the buildup work is done and all the contextualizing and all the pre-evangelism work is done, that we're still called to tell the good news. And the beauty of it is, is God works through the word. Um, all three of us on this call are Calvinists, okay? Where, wherever you fall on that issue as a listener, the point is God works sovereignly through his word. When it's proclaimed, the Holy Spirit comes in and makes dead hearts alive. And you don't have to love John Calvin to recognize that that's, that's the reality of what we see in Scripture. All who are appointed to eternal life believed. God changes hearts. He's in the business of saving people through something as foolish as the proclaimed word. First uh, Corinthians, right? The, the foolishness, the folly of the message preached. And so we want to trust God and his sovereignty to do that. What I think some would would uh, be concerned about, and, and I've seen this, is that, you know, um, I know a guy who filled a suitcase with tracks and w- went to Morocco and stood on the street corner handing out tracks that were, sure. you know, that immediately got him arrested. And, and yeah. he wore that like a badge of honor. Like here I am, yeah. I'm the only one in my city actually doing the work of evangelism. Yeah. I'm only one proclaiming the gospel. And, and we want to be careful. At least I want to be careful to say, I'm not saying that. And I don't right. think either of you are saying that. So what I want to do practically in the time we have left, just kind of, I want to give you guys some scenarios and I'd love to hear you kind of articulate what you would imagine uh, a, a, a right way to contextualize the gospel message and gospel proclamation in that setting, because, um, I, you know, you're not against contextualization in, in as a as a as a theory. Right. Like you're not saying you have to do it just like we do it in the States. Correct. No, no. None of you would say that. Right. No, not at um, all. I, so I, I'm going to give you. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, I think the issue is when we take contextualization too far. Right. And, and we yeah. forget the content of the message that we're Amen. importing into a new context. 
and, and most people don't, I, I've yet to meet a missionary who thinks they've ever taken contextualization too far. <laughs> you know, that's the problem is that, you know, we, we all think we're the, we're the balanced one and everyone else right. is on a, a fundamentalist or an extreme liberal side. And thankfully we're balanced. Uh, and uh, I, it's amazing. I've never met a pastor who says, Oh, I just took contextualization too far. So yeah, the, the question <laughs> no. is we have to be, no. we have to be Ruth. I, I mean, I would argue that I've taken contextualization too far. Uh, I mean, I've done podcasts on how I've taken contextualization too far and had to repent of that as a pastor. Yeah. Um, you but know, in the, in the middle of it, we don't generally go, I, I, I think I'm going to sin today by, uh, by falsely contextualizing the gospel, you know? So, so I want us to give some examples, at least from your, you know, as you're thinking about it, I realize I'm kind of putting you both on the spot with this, but, but what would proclamation look like maybe in a tribal setting? Um, so, I mean, I think, I think the first question, I, I, it's important. Um, what you're asking. And I think um, the, the question that that is underneath that, the assumption that, you know, anybody sending anybody to Morocco with tracks to stand on a box in a corner and get arrested is, is I, I'm sure there are people who do that. But, you know, I, started, yeah, I know someone <laughs> I started a whole training organization radius on the quote unquote proclamational model. Um, I was a part yeah. of the team that started that. And it exists to train people not to do it that way, um, nor to use DMM, but but to follow the biblical model that we see, which which is contextualized. So they speak in the language, the lingua franca, the language of the people, and they they find out what they believe about God and they start there and they walk through it. And sometimes they're doing that in synagogues. Sometimes they're doing that in public marketplaces where where the exchange of ideas is welcome. Sometimes they're doing that at home. So Paul preached the gospel in public and from house to house, right? Acts 20, verse 17 and following, he talks to the, the Ephesian elders. So I'm saying if you're in a, if you're in a tribal setting, well, you have a much better um, likelihood, for example, in a tribal setting of getting the people in the tribe to gather to hear the teaching because they're sustenance farmers um, and to have a daily yeah. teaching where they all gather as one group you build some kind of teaching house, they'll tend to come. There, you're probably going to have to start with, with helping them understand the world they live in on, the universe they live in, like the fact that where they live is, you know, some little tiny island somewhere in the ocean, and it's not the whole world. So you have to orient them to geography, and then you have to orient them to God and, and, and get into Genesis 1, because they're going to wonder, where did all this stuff start, and who is God? And you're going to have to explain why God isn't like their animistic deities, Right. Assuming right. you're pure animists, they if you go to an Indonesian people that are tribal, they might be some sort of folk Islam. So some sort of blend between animism and Islam or something. So you're going to have to deal right. with both of those issues. In some cases, they have maybe a even a Roman Catholic animism. Right. Blend. Yeah. Folk, a folk Catholicism kind of thing. So you're going to go there. That's a tribal setting. If I'm in an urban Muslim environment, for example, let's say I'm in. Saudi Arabia in a major city. I mean, yeah. first of all, the fact that I'm even there is almost a miracle on its own because, you know, Christian ministers generally aren't allowed there. So I've found a way in, which means I've had to be very adapt, um, adaptive to do that already. Now I'm there. How am I going to do it? It's probably going to be uh, I build some friendships through work and I have some people over to my home and we sit and talk about what they believe and why they believe it. And we start to walk through um, that and it's probably going to be over a series of evenings, um, maybe o 
weeks, months, or years. It's not something that's going to happen, you know, where I just, you know, stand on the street and yell at them until they hopefully turn to Christ. So that, that, that context is going to be a lot different because they're professionals in an urban environment. They have regular jobs. They just can't gather in the middle of the afternoon for the whole community to come here or teach you or something. Right. So it's going to look a lot different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you want to add to that, Alex? No, I, I think part of this project is at, at the end of the day, there are aspects of how you apply what's being called a proclamational model um, that are similar to other methodologies in that, you know what, there's still sensitivity to language, sensitivity to context. Again, uh, it's the straw man idea that says, yeah, we're not going to slow down. We're not going to focus on communicating in a way that's relevant to a person's worldview and takes into consideration where they are. Um, I, I think it, the, the differences especially come in where is your end point? Is your end point to bring someone into that moment of confrontation or is your end point to avoid a method of confrontation altogether, uh, a, a point of confrontation or, or to, to push that off into some other setting where the missionary isn't involved in that at all? Um, so I agree with all that. I would say to, to people that haven't seen a, a film like Etau, uh, which is available on YouTube um, for free, I think it's probably 30 minutes long. Uh, don't ask me how to spell it. Uh, I'm sure you guys know. I, I could probably try, but I would butcher it. E-E hyphen T-A-O. 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 Yeah, I think so. Is there a W at the end? Um, but it's a story it's, of know. that no, exact so thing happening. In a tri- <laughs> right. It's that story of that exact same thing happening in a tribal context through new tribes missionaries. It's very similar to a model used by organizations like ABWE through the Good Soil Chronological Bible Story uh, curriculum. Um, that can be used in in an urban context or in a in a um, suburban context or a tribal context. The beauty of it is, is you're walking people from Genesis to Revelation. You're show, showing how it all points to Christ. But the goal is, with the understanding of that set up, then calling a person to Christ and inviting them to Christ. Well, read the autobiography of John Payton or the or the biography to the Golden Shore of Adoniram Judson. Um, you know, you'll see things they shouldn't have done, but you'll also see much that's worth emulating. So so without using, you know, acronyms or abbreviations or assuming any kind of pre understanding of of any of the things that you're concerned about um, that are going on in missiology, um, just just to kind of show an antithesis between because I think if you're saying this is a model that we need to follow, this is the apostolic model. It's also important to understand, like, what are the 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 other models that are, that were, that were concerned about with us. So without using those, the, the, that language, cause I think it can be helpful in a, in a setting, but it's kind of like the Calvinism Arminianism debate sometimes where people are arguing against things that the, the person who thinks that they're this or that doesn't even hold to, it helps to get down to specifics. Um, so you've laid out a lot of specifics about what a proclamation is um, if we're going to you get rid of terminologies like it sounds to me like what you're concerned about is one of those things is expecting people who are lost to be able to take the Bible and read it without being taught by a leader or without being without the gospel being clearly taught and explained and hopefully finding the gospel on their own. That seems to be one of the big things that you're concerned about as a methodology that, Hey, I'm going to stay out of this. Just let that take, that take place. What are some of the other uh, practices that you're most concerned about that you want to see this uh, proclamation being, uh, being brought back to the service to correct? What are some of those other practices you're, you want to see corrected? 
Let's say gospel, church, and mission. So I've just put those three categories. The first one you already dealt with in the gospel. What is the gospel? Um, what are the facts and what is the doctrine? As I stated out, stated earlier, and and are we clearly making that known to people? Um, the missionary is sent to do that. He's not sent to facilitate discussions um, that where people self discover what the Bible says. He's sent to be a proclaimer, an ambassador for Christ, a proclaimer of the word. And we can take issue with whether or not I'm over applying 2 Corinthians 5 as, as the apostles or ambassadors there. But, but the point is, is that, that, that he's to go out and, and have the word of God in his mouth um, and, mm-hmm. you know, contextualize in the sense of, are you one-on-one or are you in front of a crowd? Or are you in an animistic people group or Islamic people or whatever? We, you know, are you speaking their language, et cetera? So gospel being pro- clearly proclaimed so that there's the, an actual confrontation. You are a sinner and you will be under God's judgment if you don't look to Christ, repent of your sins, believe, etc. Second, church. Do we understand what it is that Christ is building? Like the mission of Christ is to build his church. He tells us that in Matthew 16, I will build my church. Um, the spirit has come to build the church through the proclamation of Christ. So do we know what that is? Do we have a definition of a church? And is that happening? A group of unbelievers Mm -hmm. meeting together, uh, 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 obeying some of the gospel command, the commands in the gospels is not a church. Um, So what is a church? A church is um, a gathering of believers, right? It's a gathering of people who profess Christ, um, who are baptized, who participate in the Lord's Supper, who are under the preaching of the word, um, who participate in church discipline. There's a setting up of elders and deacons. That's just the biblical model of a church. Um, I'm concerned when missiologists like um, the, the, the husband of Ralph Winter's daughter, when he speaks publicly and says, for example, that baptism is a Western imposition that we shouldn't force upon people in India, for example, which I heard him say, I have the audio. I think Alex even references it in one of his chapters. Yeah. Um, you know, baptism is given by, I mean, John the Baptist would, it would be news to that ancient Near Easterner that that's a Western imposition. But the, um, you know, so when I look at that kind of a thing, I just think that concerns me. And then yeah. when I say mission, what I mean is what is the mission of the church? Like Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert spoke, what is the mission of the church? It's not to build wells. Now building wells is great. Build wells, give people fresh water. That's wonderful. That is a fulfillment of the great commandment but it is not a fulfillment of the great commission. And we need to distinguish. You often are going to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission together at the same time. Right. In fact, right. I think you always hopefully are fulfilling them together at the same time, but let's distinguish without dividing them. Right. So I'm going to love mm-hmm. my neighbor, but that's not evangelism. Uh, it's, it's not fulfilling the mission of the great commission, being kind to them, telling them the gospel is But if I tell them the gospel and I'm not kind to them, you know, that's not going to go over well. So I want to keep the great commandment and the great commission together, but I don't want to confuse them. So those are the three areas I'm concerned about in missiology. So proclamation can look different, but it is going to lead to an explanation of the gospel. And it isn't just simply I'm hoping to live my life in a nice way around people that maybe they would uh, see see, see that something's different about me and, uh, and maybe ask me a question like that's half of it, but it's not finishing it, nor, nor is it, uh, simply giving someone a Bible or giving them some reading to do. And hopefully the Holy spirit just guides them on their own. It's about 
teaching them and guiding them and, and explaining that to them. So I, I think those are helpful things that you guys have laid out. Uh, I, one, you know, one more concern that I hear and I, and I've seen it and I, so I, I do think it's a real concern and, but I think there's some, some ways to answer this is that there is some concern in some fields and I've, I've seen it where, um, you know, a missionary starts a small group of a small church and, um, you know, he's from America, he's well-trained, he's got some good theology and, uh, he's ready to leave the relieve ch- and move on to another place. And he's even got a guy that he's discipled to take over that ministry. And because this other guy is a national and he's not trained in the same way as the original missionary was, and, and he doesn't represent to those people what a, what a, a pastor should look like. They don't receive his, his leadership and they are unable to kind of detach themselves from the, the missionary, so to speak, or not, so to speak, the missionary. And I think, so I think that's part of the concern that leads to saying, Hey, we want to stay in the background. We want to have the, the, have this take place naturally amongst the national people. What would you suggest or do you have any thoughts about how a missionary can lead, uh, can do the task they're given to do while making sure that they don't become, you know, some kind of a, a proxy for God in a way that's unhealthy that can't be transferred over to a national leader. Any thoughts on that? I'll share a couple of thoughts. I, I, I think this is one area where if there's anything you know, that we receive in terms of edification from all of the debates over these methodologies, it's in recognizing some some pieces of, of New Testament teaching and practice that maybe aren't always emphasized. So yeah, within this model of of highly esteeming the local church, um, we also have, and, and, and getting our definitions right, right, all of that, we also have some pretty clear um, exemplar passages from Paul and from others where uh, men are being trained as elders, as deacons are being appointed. Uh, you have the apostles who are itinerant, going from one place to the next. And and there is also something to be said for um, beginning with the end in mind, for going and recognizing that you're there for the long haul as long as it takes. Uh, but also part of the Great Commission is teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded. And one of the things that Jesus also commanded was to go, right? There's that missionary going and sending impulse, even from the very moment that that the embryo of a church community forms in an unreached place where it didn't already exist. And so I think we need to be discipling toward that end. And I also wonder, and I can't prove this, and I certainly don't have the uh, the experience or the firsthand knowledge to verify this, um, but I wonder for as much as people talk about the benefits of something uh, a movement being indigenous and sort of gathering its own momentum and maybe the advantages of that. Uh, you, you also have to wonder about what does it, what does it say? There's the immediate emotional reaction, but then there's, what does it really say when a missionary leaves um, or, or enters into a partnership? Whereas, you know, before they were, they were the leader and, and then they're able to assume a lower position. Um, what, what does that say? Um, does that make a statement to, uh, the the nationals um, in that context of this person came for a task and they left and now it is us you know the sort of the being kicked out of the nest you know kind of sense of that um, there's a film that Radius put out Chad knows what I'm talking about Scott I think you've seen it too showing our friend Brooks Buser's journey and and the day that the tribe said farewell to him in Papua New Guinea and they mm-hmm. they're wearing all of their traditional sort of tribal garb and he's able to present to them the completed Bible and there's a church that's formed there and he's leaving. Um, and, and that can be hard. And of course, the question of what happens next is a question that's as old as church history, um, even as old as the first century. 
But that's a powerful statement that that makes, that there is a day where the missionary won't be there. And as followers of Christ, what we're doing is is training people to make disciples, uh, not only to believe and to repent and respond, but then, yes, now you're invited to live this sort of missionary lowercase m lifestyle of being responsible for the task of proclamation itself as well and putting the onus on people. I, I think I think that's helpful. We at Radius, we training we're training people how to pass the baton. I mean, the assumption is that we need to any any model that keeps the the indigenous church um, persistently, perpetually uh, dependent upon the American church to to survive is a bad model, right? So this is why we do long, slow work of of teaching the Bible from Genesis, you know, all the way through of helping them know it, of translating it into their language. We do that in their tongue on purpose. And then of, of training up elders and deacons um, to lead that church, to pass on to them the scriptures in their language and to have elders and deacons who can lead that church. Now, my own church is wrestling with what happens when we get there. And the tribe says, hey, you know, if you look at church history, now let's just say the people group, You've taught them enough. They look at church history. It doesn't take very long before the church goes into error again and again and again. So how do you how do you stop that? Um, I do think there's some sense in which um, further training might be necessary. So elders and deacons leave. I mean, elders and deacons stay, but the uh, missionaries leave. Sorry, I got that exactly opposite of what I meant. Um, the missionaries leave. But it may be necessary to send people back to continue training the elders from time to time. Um, even giving them tools so they can improve their own translation. Like, hey, we can send people to train them in Greek and Hebrew so they can they can improve their own translation over time. Or we can send people to help them uh, come further along in debates the church has already fought over for centuries to help them come along um, so that they build their own foundation there. But um, I'm particularly concerned about these models where we basically establish pastors that have to be forever financially supported by Western churches. And I want to ask the question, um, have we done our job if we set up a model in which they need our financial support forever in order to survive? And they, they can never really be independent as a church. So maybe our model is right. problematic, right? If yeah. we have a model in which we end up with them having to be financially dependent forever. Um, so we, we, we fight against that pretty hard. Well, thank you guys for your thoughts. I think we need to wrap up at this time. I hope it's added a little bit of of light to the discussion and some clarity to the discussion. I think we need to keep pressing into it um, so that we don't just get stu- stuck in little, our little cul-de-sacs. We don't just hear uh, acronyms or, or terms and assume we know what the meaning are, but go a little bit deeper. And so I really appreciate you guys both taking the time to uh, help us articulate what you mean specifically when it talks about proclamational evangelism and and why that is uh, the the New Testament model and a model that that doesn't mean we're against any kind of contextualization. It doesn't mean we're against one on one discipleship and growth, but it does mean some very important things about the goal and the method about how we go about evangelism. So thank you guys so much for this conversation. And you can check out more at uh, ABWE.com. You can grab Alex and Chad's book. Uh What's it, which is called, remind me the title again. I'm sorry, ABWB. my mind just blanked. Yeah, let me take it from here, Scott. So, yes. Thank you, Alex. You're uh, the get more. That's up. right, that's right. Now, this is why we break up the distribution of labor the way that we do. Yeah, no, the, the book that Chad and I wrote is uh, Missions by the Book, available from Founders Press. We'll include a link in the show notes as well. And thank you for listening today. The Missions Podcast is a resource of ABWE. You can go to abwe.org to get more, or to get more content, go to missionspodcast.com. Of course, it is 
is towards our end of year season, and we value your support partnership with this show to help us continue to bless missionaries on the field and equip them for hard things like proclamation. Go to missionspodcast.com slash support to show your support, and that enables us to do more of what we do. And remember to like the show, share it with a friend, leave us a positive review and a five-star rating in your app of choice that'll help appease the algorithms and get this content in front of others. And until next time, thank you for listening.